welcome to episode five of Speaking the Truth. This is your host, Anthony Brown. This episode of Speaking the Truth is sponsored by Associates Life Coaching and Counseling. If you're feeling blue and don't know what to do, call Anthony Brown and he will help you. Go to www.associates life coaching and counseling for more information. So this is episode five of Speaking the Truth. And what I have not been doing in the past is encourage you to subscribe to get announcements of the next episode. So I want you to hit the subscribe button. And also, if you think of a topic or you think uh, or have any questions about mental health, about happiness, about anything in general like that, uh, feel free to email me at speakingthetruth.ab at gmail.com. Today, I will be interviewing a colleague, a friend of uh, of mine in the profession, Dr. Michael Bailey. Uh, Dr. Michael Bailey has a, uh, what is it, a, a, a doctorate in social work from the Rutgers doctor, University? From Rutgers University, that's right, the doctorate in social work degree. Okay, okay, good, good. And, you're, and, where, and where, where are you uh, currently, what city are you currently uh, working in right now? Uh, right now I work at uh, Army Hospital um, in, in Virginia, Fort Lee, okay. Virginia. Yeah. Okay. In the same so, medicine clinic. Okay, so why social work? What what, uh, got you involved in social work? So social work was a profession that actually chose me um, instead of me choosing it. Um, Mm -hmm. Undergraduate, I had majored in uh, psychology and actually actually minored in social work um, when I was at Norfolk State University. Mm -hmm. And um, I recall taking a senior health care policy course, and um, there was this final term paper that we had to submit and the research that the topic that I was assigned was uh, HIV and AIDS. Mm-hmm. And um, I can remember uh, quite vividly um, citing uh, the text or text or research that um, which most largely uh, posited that HIV was a disease that had made a species jump from chimpanzee to men. Mm-hmm. Um, I can recall getting the, the, the assignment back from a professor. And um, while I did receive an a, a, a on the paper, um, when I cited that section she wrote in her comments, this is absolutely ridiculous. <laughs> and at the time, <laughs> at the time I thought, uh, you know, I, I just was brainstorming, well, what should, could she mean? Well, you know, what could she be talk, possibly talking about? But um, when I thought about it, she was pushing me to be critical and like really challenge the idea of of how HIV could have made a species jump from chimpanzee to man, and so from that course, um, it kind of it kind of uh, laid the foundation for me to to use critical thinking, and um and I like what appealed to me more about social work was the social justice aspect um, of of the type of work um, that's done in the profession. So that's how I first um you know got started or how social work chose me as a professor okay okay now now i'm curious about, i'm i'm a, i'm going to come back to social justice but i have a, a a quick a quick curiosity question about your research about that uh the source about the chimpanzee was that from a a peer reviewed source um so they were from journal articles um um they were from articles in latex they were from mm-hmm. articles from refereed journal articles um uh, that uh while although it had not been scientifically proven mm-hmm. um that 
that that's the source or, you know, that it was a species jump is widely accepted as the means of, uh, how, um, HIV, uh, okay. first initiated. Okay. But, but once I did my critical thinking, you know, I did, mm-hmm. went back and did my own type of connecting, connective thinking and was able to, you know, come up with a more logical, uh, you know, plausible explanation of, how how you know you know what was happening at the time when it was happening okay well, what would that be what what is, what is your hypothesis so what i so what i found um when i did my own critical review uh um what i did was i just actually pl- applied some basic counseling um techniques and questions to to what i was researching and and those two simple questions were you know what was going on around the time when, you know, HIV first emerged or first started showing its face, um, you know, to, to the world. And then number two, what's happened, what was happening to help maintain it, you know, what was happening to help maintain it and help it persist. And so when I went back and looked, okay, well, what was the population who it first affected, you know, mm-hmm. it first affected gay men um, in San Francisco, uh, New York, and uh, uh, Detroit. No, St. Louis. St. Louis were the main cities uh, where you first started seeing um, the outbreaks. And, and back then they were referring to it as grid, gay-related immunodeficiency. Uh, but, but didn't that have something to do with where the vacation spots were for these white gay men? Not necessarily. It, it, that, so those vacationing spots were expected um, places where they, you know, where it, you know, they expected that it could easily be communicably uh, contracted. But even pretext to, to that, just in these areas, when I researched, you know, sticking to the question about what was going on around the time when we first saw the first, the very first mm-hmm. cases um, mm-hmm. of of the Kapowski uh, sarcoma lesions and, you know, people actually getting sick and dying was that in those particular cities, um there was a hepatitis B vaccination uh, trial, mm. and they had very organized. The National Institute of Health had flyers, and they still exist. You can go online, and if you Google this, uh, this was the year was uh, 1971, 1971. No, I'm getting it wrong. The year was 1978. Okay, that, that sounds more like it. 1978. That the national, right, right. 1978. And um, if you Google um, hepatitis B vaccination uh, trials, um, you can still see the flyers. It says something like, this is your last chance to sign up. So that was, that was one of the things that was happening um, in New York City and in uh, California at the same time. Uh, where so, and, and what happened was um, a, a large percentage of the individuals who volunteered for mm-hmm. those uh, vaccination programs um, were the, were uh, tested positive, were the, were the ones who, in fact, actually, it was something, a, a number as large as 80%, 78 to 80% of the people who volunteered for uh, the vaccination uh, program. Uh, ended up with with grid with the you know with with mm-hmm. grid and actually passed away which which ended up being HIV and, and eventually AIDS right right okay. so that I mean that just explains it for the United States now if we if we look at Africa and all of those things there were you know that nat at the during 
that time, it was a mass uh, polio vaccination that was going on, you know, with that oral vaccination at the same time. So to, okay. to me, in my thinking, mm-hmm. you know, kind of more mathematically, logically explains how you can have something something existing like that. Something and that's that why the, the, the African strand and the United States strand is different. Probably. It's different. Right, right. Okay. Right. So do you, so that sounds like, uh, allegedly that disease, I have to say allegedly for, for legal reasons, right, that right. disease could, uh, possibly be a disease that was purposely implanted similar to the Tuskegee men, uh, with, uh, syphilis. Right. And, um, Is that what you deducing? Um, I would, I would say it's, a, it's, it's highly possible. You know, and, and you know, um, and actually, this kind of fuel a lot of my interest in dealing with uh, issues of authority and institutions and kind of mistrust of the medical community. I mean, if you look back, you know, um, I guess if we use the Tuskegee uh, syphilis experiments as as an example uh, for the discussion, you know, then you can kind of wholly see that. You know, that you can understand why there, you know, has been a, a big mistrust of the medical community. Like even to date, you know, still a lot of certain groups, you know, largely African Americans, other populations mm-hmm. who, who do not go to the doctor, um, or mm-hmm. would not, you know, take preventative, you know, yeah. <sighs> Preventive, preventative medicine because of a big distrust for the medical right and, uh, and that community. And I think that morphs over into the mental health community where uh, people, especially minority people, will not uh, uh, go to mental health professionals and talk to uh, uh, just try to get their mental health uh, 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 on on uh, balance to right. try to allow themselves to explore the issues that they have and, and, and to, to unpack things that's happening, they would probably go to their pastor who isn't trained to uh, allow a person to explore and unpack and, and uh, uh, process uh, things that happen in their lives and their childhood and things of that nature. So, so it seems like this, it's even more so a distrust when it comes to mental health. Yeah, and, I, and, and it's possible that they see... Um, the mental health realm as just an extension of the medical community. And so, mm-hmm. so that's quite possible. Yeah, and, and we've been trained as African Americans. I can only speak from African Americans because that's who I am. Not to tell your business outside the household. Right. You know, yeah, it's always big, been, big, been a cold. Right. Big mistrust. Some people, you know, some people will only go to elders. They seek elders as a source of you know, of guidance or even, yeah. as you said, uh, the pastor or, you know, some spiritual advisor um, as a source of guidance rather than engage with uh, uh, mental health professionals. Okay. Now, you you mentioned social justice that being a component, a component of social work. Uh, I remember, uh, one thing in, in counseling, which is, is uh, in my professor, uh, my, especially in uh, mental health with uh uh, counseling and uh, uh, family and uh, and also uh, uh, marriage and family therapy. Um, there is somewhat of a mental, uh, somewhat of a social justice component. Also, uh, where I go to, where I'm working on my uh, PhD at, and for the whole school at Walden University, there's a really big push in social justice. So, in so specifically in the major of social work, 
what makes social justice stand out? What 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 is about social work as a major or as a, a profession that social justice uh, uh, is, is a big part of? Is one of the values. Um, yeah. So mainly, uh, social work is one one of the values, and also, which I think is connected uh, very tightly along with uh, social justice, is the value and worth. Of, of an individual as, mm-hmm. as as guiding their own path, as setting their own mm-hmm. direction, as having their their first person narrative heard, and and, and really when I think of social justice, um, that's more um, what what stands out to me the most is that the person you know has to say has that that they're that they're seen as a person. On top of whatever their issue is, on top of whatever they've been through, however they've been mistreated, wherever they are, and navigating through different systems, that them as a person, seeing them as a person, actually answering the question of what is a person through whatever issue is, just from their first-person narrative, is is uh, the ideal uh, position of understanding when dealing, thinking about social justice. Mm-hmm. Now, um, ironically, you just brought something to my mind. I was listening to one of the TED Talks episode on yesterday on uh, their podcast, and there was a gentleman on that episode that was talking about harm reduction, and okay. it, it talks about that very thing in terms of looking at the person, individual, and, and, and value valuing them, but using the harm reduction in terms of treating the per- being the person where they are and treating the person, and, and it was specifically talking about homelessness, but it was bringing into the other uh, treatment in, uh, in terms of uh, addictions and how addiction should be treated in terms of harm reductions and how this particular city, particular city, I can't remember what city it was, had a 91% decrease in homelessness because uh, uh, the way they treated the mental health and the addictions was in harm reduction. Uh, is that something, and I know counseling pushes harm reduction even though I've had some reservations until, I, until I've heard it in the way that he explored it on uh, on the TED Talks. Is harm reduction something that that you're familiar with? I mean, something that's just pushing yes. social work. Yes, it is. Um, harm reduction is um, uh, something that's that I am familiar with. That I actually use um, in my practice. I mean, for, for the premise for me, mostly because I mean, if you think about a lot of the issues that um, our clients, you know, present with or you know are working through or trying to navigate through. They are, they are the, I'm going to label them experts in their own narrative and, and exactly. what they've been dealing with. And only they can, I, I say this way and only, I mean, so we can, I mean, just looking at it from a diagnostic or a classification model, that's just a, in my um, opinion, is a reductionist model, but just helps us, gives us a framework of how to, how to, how to look at the individual. But also adding to that is this person coming with their issue and how they've coped with it and what worked for them and what didn't work and, you know, what's about to happen. Like they are the experts in, in a, in a way that we are not. And yeah. so their narrative adding to that story and, and, uh, really looking at, you know, what's working. Are they ready now? You know, what are they ready for? Are you ready? You know, having that conversation. Mm-hmm. And so, Harm reduction sits along those. To me, is like a liaison, along with you know, in between, like a wedge between uh, the classification system of the diagnostic side, along with the the client's uh, narrative and you know, and and their readiness uh, for for the areas of work 
you know, that they want to address. Right. And then family, I would say the family counseling, that's one really big aspect of it is uh, letting, the, even though you may be treating a child or treating family as a whole, letting the parent know that they are the expert. Even an individual on a, on a level, on a, it's, it, you are the expert in your narrative. So, so that's, that's a, a really non-judgmental approach in terms of how you uh, lead a person into, towards happiness is letting the person know that they are the expert in, in their narrative and, mm-hmm. and the, 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 they have the keys to a more healthy, happy life. The counselor is just there to facilitate, to help them find uh, those, uh, to find uh, a way to the, the correct pathways. Right. And it, it also, happens. exactly, I agree with you. And it also allows and helps us to see them as a person, you see, as a person with their lived experience with their condition and not mm-hmm. just a diet, not just a diagnosis, you know, not just mm-hmm. that, uh, that text, you know, that we use the DSM. <laughs> okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. Just, just for the audience to know. Um, let me explain something. Uh, well, I'll allow you to explain it. Explain harm reduction for our, our audience that uh, is not privy to mental health. Explain that, and then uh, I'm, I have another question to ask you after that. So, harm reduction basically um, is a model that assesses uh, readiness. You know, ready where you are um, on the continuum of change and, and making and uh, making a change uh, towards changing whatever your issue is. So let's just say the condition is uh, using drugs, just that general alcohol abuse. You know, where where you are on on in your level of readiness of making that change, and let's just assume that it's alcohol, and maybe you have five drinks a night, every night during the week. And you come in to, let's say you come in to see me and we're discussing, you know, and you're drinking. And of course, a, you could identify it as an area for work that you want to change. And maybe you're not ready to quit drinking all the way. Maybe you can't just cut out drinking altogether, but maybe you might can agree to having this maybe three drinks a night initially. And then gradually, you, you know, maybe we could work it down to, maybe two drinks a night and then, or maybe one drink a night or maybe one drink a week. So it's just taking gradual steps and assessing your level of readiness of where you are and working on um, whatever area you identify for change. Right. And when it comes to uh, uh, addiction, that's a totally different approach, uh, especially in the, uh, in the court system that they use. When I was working on my practical and counseling, uh, and we had to deal with ISP and IOP, and these are just the, the different levels of intensity, the intensity of the uh, of the group therapy that the uh, and the and the individual counseling that the uh, uh, clients will receive to stop smoking weed or to stop uh, using drugs or any other drugs. Uh, uh, the uh, uh, harm reduction was not that model; it was just to completely stop. And if you could not completely stop. Then there were other drugs that they were introduced to uh, to give you to replace it, and gradually wean you off of it. Of course, when it comes to alcoholism, if if a person is uh, is really may have to be hospitalized in that situation so that they can uh, be weaned off of the ethanol. So, so do you think in the when it comes to criminal justice, 
would, if harm reduction was introduced in something that's accepted uh, in the criminal justice world, do you think there would be more success rate? Or we would not recidivism? I believe so. I believe, um, I believe so. Uh, because again, if we're um, talking about assessing, uh, readiness and, and where, I mean, a big proponent and goal for social work and probably other mental health professions, you know, yours as well, is, um, is meeting the client where they are, you know, mm-hmm. addressing their needs and, and, and really listening and seeing them and looking at where they are and identifying, you know, the 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 area of work that's you know that that that's that's ahead of them and and realistically looking at you know saying well if this is this something that you really can do is it something that's you know that's realistic um mm-hmm. so i i i believe that um if harm reduction was something that was used uh with the juvenile justice system um that it's possible that we could see a higher uh success rate in terms of uh People being successful with treatment and and working with uh, the juvenile justice system. Um, yeah, I, I believe that. And in my opinion, I think you you had mentioned uh, my my uh, profession counseling and then uh, management family therapy and yours and social work. Isn't in my opinion is all the same. We we all mm-hmm. take the same classes. We take the same books. This is politics, in my opinion. Right. Separate <laughs> social work. From counseling, from psychology, it's all the same. We use the same books. We just, mm-hmm. and the code of ethics is politics. The code of ethics may differ uh, very little bit, but it's, it's pretty much all the same. And, mm-hmm. and, the, and the goals are pretty much all the same. And we all use the DSM five. I, I, you know, so that's just my opinion. Yeah, yeah, it's pretty much it's pretty much all the same. And our approaches may be, you know, somewhat. Uh, Different, but this pretty yeah. the goal the goal that we're striving for you know is, is the same which is uh which is um improving uh enjoyment of life quality of life uh, mm-hmm. for, for for individuals that we work with okay so uh, dr Bailey, you received your master's in social work from uh Rutgers and your uh, dsw from Rutgers yes i did my msw and my dsw from Rutgers University. Okay. Why Rutgers? Uh, Rutgers. <laughs> at the time, um, when I was in, un- well, when I was in undergraduate school at, uh, Norfolk State University, uh, two of my lead professors, um, had actually gotten their, well, one got his PhD in psychology from Rutgers University and another professor, um, the professor who actually, uh, Pushed me to do, you know, challenging with the critical thinking. Had, had received her MSW from Rutgers, and uh, when I looked at the school, it looked like a great uh, school of social work, and it was in, you know, position in uh, close to uh, New York City, to Manhattan, and so uh, it, it, it sparked my interest um, as, as far as for the MSW, um, for the DSW, the Doctorate of Social Work. Um, what actually uh, caught my attention about that program is I, at, during that time, I was actually practicing at a juvenile correctional facility in New Jersey. Mm-hmm. And I had worked there for maybe about five years at the time already. And in doing so, um, you know, I enjoyed my work. I enjoyed the population that I worked with. I found it uh, very uh, gratifying um, doing the type of work that I did. 
but I felt like there's something else. Like I, I, it was so much that I was seeing and I wanted to have a voice of it, but I felt like I just as a regular, as a clinician, I didn't have a voice. Mm-hmm. And when this DSW program, um, so let me just give you a little history about the, the DSW, Doctorate of Social Work, um, sure. as a, de- as a degree first. Um, so first, uh, Catholic University, uh, was the first, uh, institution to confer, um, the DSW degree. And that was during okay. the 1940s. Okay. Um, during that time, the DSW was largely, uh, structured like a, a PhD program. Uh, mm-hmm. which you, what you know, doctor of philosophy is, is mostly a research degree, is a heavily research based degree. Right, right. Right. So, um, kind of some programming and it's a monster. Right. right. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> to play with. Yeah. <laughs> so, so the P, you know, and so a lot of the, the, so the DSW back then were heavily structured, uh, like the, the doctor of philosophy, the PhD degrees, uh, heavy in research. Then they can, uh, other institutions started granting the DSW, but then in the, in the late nineties, you saw a lot of uh, institutions converting the DSWs, their DSWs, into PhD programs because the the whole rhetoric, the whole setup was just like a a doctor of philosophy degree. And then um, maybe about six years ago, the University of Pennsylvania was the first institution to bring the DSW back. Um, However, their DSW, um, you know, went along with the traditional uh, uh, setup or structure as as a PhD. So still with their DSW, you know, you would do uh, you know, the research and the dissertation and, you know, just structure just like a PhD program. Mm-hmm. So the, the DSW at Rutgers came back a year later after uh, after uh, the University of Pennsylvania had started theirs. But what was unique and what caught my attention about the DSW at Rutgers was its uh, focus on scholarship, engaged scholarship, you know, putting putting your voice, meaning myself, you know, putting my voice in conversation with published literature mm-hmm. and, and writing what was compelling about an issue to me and generating knowledge that way. It wasn't so heavily focused on, you know, quantitative and, you know, Gathering research, but more qualitative so, and mixed method right. and things of that right. nature. Right. So it had more of a practitioner scholarship, uh, method, you know, structure to it. And I okay. said, Oh, well, so here's my voice. You know, I was practicing in, in, uh, the, the correctional food. And I said, you know, I, I have so much to say, but I don't have a medium, the means to do it. And so here comes the DSW at Rutgers. And when I look at the structure of it and how it used scholarship and um, a lot of the writing that we did there, uh, we, we, you know, uh, one of the, the the main major assignments was writing to a theory. Um, one year, which is was a case study, we, you know, we we published via case study. So mm-hmm. the first year we wrote to a theory, and then in the second year we wrote to a question, uh, which I wrote to what is a conscience, and then. We did a academic book review, and then we did uh, had to do teaching resources, and and then um, then a fine our final project was a, a multimedia uh, MMP uh, 
publication dissertation, which is a traditional. Okay, explain what. Uh, 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 well, first of all, uh, let me uh, say that that you listen to speaking the truth with uh, your host Anthony Brown. I'm interviewing Dr. Michael Bailey, uh, a licensed uh, social worker uh, from uh, the state of Virginia, and we're. Uh, Talking a little bit about uh, social work and things of that, and the counseling and things of that nature. Okay, then continue. What what is the uh, MMP? So MMP um, is a multimedia project. Where if you think traditionally, um, when you publish or you know write up a dissertation, is written on bond paper and it you know gets stored in the library, the archives. And with a multimedia project, you publish on the web. And it's just like it sounds. You use text, you use pictures, you use sounds, you use videos, um, you use uh, living documents, you know, from whatever topic uh, that you're using. And you just, you put your voice, you know, you write about what's compelling or your topic, um, which I wrote about the abuse of authority and uh, power, abuse okay. of authority and power. Um and and once it's published, on, you know everybody can see it. You know, it's, it's a live, it's a live. Uh, I, I would call it a document, but it's a live project, a living project. Okay, so can, so it's different from the quantitative and qualitative model, and it, I guess if you will, uh, to put it in a category, it could mm-hmm. be a quantitative quality, project. Quality, uh, uh, right. uh, uh, I'm sorry, a qualitative project. Project, mm-hmm. but you, but your voice within the research and your response to the research. Right, right. So okay. publish, okay. you know, you found authors, you put them in conversation with each other, and then, you you know, your site analysis on what was compelling along with, you know, what you brought from from your practice. And, and that that's how, you know, you generate new knowledge. It's not necessarily collecting, you know, collecting like numbers or crunching numbers or, you know, okay. the traditional... Um, uh, research based what you would find in a doctor of philosophy program. Okay. But it's more so, um, so in that particular program, uh, there is no, uh, it is not a clinical setting. It's just basically, uh, the MMP model. Right. It's not, so you're not trained. So you, so, okay. So in order to, to be in, in the DSW, you already have to have an independent clinical, which I, mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a, you have to be a licensed clinical. So LCSW. Mm-hmm. Um, and so what you bring, what you bring into the writing workshops, what you bring when you write your theory, you know, when you write to your question, all of that comes from your clinical practice. It will be cases okay. from, from people that you, you know, it could be cases from people that you've treated or some social justice issue at an institution or mm-hmm. any type of issue that you want to write up on. And what, okay. what we do is we use journal articles. But we also, you know, what's compelling for it about us? You know what I'm saying? What was the insight for what's different now? What's new? You know, how, you know, how, how we generate new knowledge about this. And so that's, you know. Right. And that's, that's interesting. That's a lot different from the counselor, the doctorate and the PhD in counseling education supervision, which is the PhD for counseling. And, uh, it could be the reason why I picked, uh, forensic psychology versus counseling education supervision. Uh, because I've already did the clinical part. I didn't want to do another practicum again because uh, it makes you do more practicum work, which I think is redundant when you've already done all that work on the, on the master's level. So that's, that's a good, that's, that's a good program. I can see that, uh, see you being attracted to that, to that particular program. Yeah. And it's, 
uh, along with some wonderful people, um, some of the most wonderful people I ever uh, sat with and engaged with, um, my cohort members, and uh, they had picked, selected a wide range, uh, you know, people from a wide range of backgrounds. Who, you know, had mm-hmm. had women who had a few who had been in private practice for over thirty years. Uh, we had, you know, someone just really just starting out. Uh, in, in the area of uh, clinical practice, um, you know, mm-hmm. people who work with uh, sex offenders, um, you know, people who we had a few psychoanalysts, and, and you know, in our cohort, so it was a very rich, uh, rich uh, learning environment. Uh, and it's similar to, to, to my my environment as well as what I uh, I uh, discovered. You know, I'm in an online environment. We uh, we come for our residencies. You have that that uh, for a week. You have that connection with the others that's in your program, and I have lawyers. That there are people in this in the uh, 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 sexual uh, crime uh, division of it, uh, in, in a wide range. Some IT people who've for whatever reason decided to come and get their masters in something uh, related and come and get their uh, PhD in in uh, forensic psychology. So. Uh, uh, that, that 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 brings a lot of richness to the program and different perspectives that you wouldn't uh, normally have. It, it was amazing every time you know people spoke. It, it was we would have a topic and everyone would have a different angle, a different perspective. You know, and, and so you know, I agree. You know that that was a whole rich you know the richness yeah. of being in that type of environment. So I learned so much. I I, I don't think I ever forget. <laughs> Now, what was your research uh, while you were receiving your PhD uh, from your DSW? I'm sorry, from uh, Rutgers. Um, so I did a lot of work on uh, moral moral decision making and um, and, um, and and really thinking a lot of thinking about thinking of, of what a conscience, you know, about conscience, thinking about what is a conscience and 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 you know how that. Uh, comes out or plays out in decision making. You know, you know how how is it contextualized and and how we make decisions. Um, you know, moral judgment decisions and how we navigate okay. around those types of uh, decisions. So, isn't morality different for for different people? And and it, and, and it is, and and that's what I, uh, you know, that's what I come to see. It, you know, a blink understanding of, uh, you know, what I, when I was going into this research blindly and um, thinking about uh, a conscience, the first thing that came into mind was, well, you know, a conscience for, for you know, for most people would be the difference, you know, determining the difference between right and wrong, you know. Mm-hmm. But um, you're absolutely right. What I learned is, is it's not that static. You know, it's not as static as placing a value of right and wrong, and, and it's different, and it is is very it it, it varies widely um, from um, from from individual to individual. Um, yeah. And uh, in in writing to that question of what is a conscience, you know, I use three different uh, uh, patients that I treated uh, uh, at you know various different ages. The one was a eighteen year old. A, Twenty-year-old and a sixty-five-year-old, um, and and for each each individual, you know how they navigated and uh, uh, what the issue was for each of them. It, it, it you know 
you're absolutely right. It's 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 very it varies from person to person. So if a person has multiple personalities, or they may have three different versions of consciousness. Right. <laughs> that's, that's a corny joke. Right? Really? <laughs> okay. Well, then, so then we're talking about a conscience. Well, so then, then they may they may be in an altered state of consciousness. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, if, if we're talking about multiple right. personalities. Right. Um, but essentially, you know, it does. I mean, if, if we when we think about it, um, most of the times. Um, what is relative to it, um, certainly is there is a, an aspect of, you know, uh, weighing what's right, you know, difference between right, right and wrong and how we internalize that and, you know, how we're social, how that, you know, how we're socialized and, you know, all of the inst- the social institutions that, that comes from. And that's what I, that's what I term moral knowledge. Mm-hmm. Moral knowledge is, you know, knowing the difference between right and wrong. You know, when you was a kid, you know, whether your parents knocked you upside the head, you know, the values that they instilled in you, what you learned from church, all of that is your moral knowledge, right? Okay. So a person who is a sociopath, well, let's say a psychopath. Mm-hmm. Well, actually, a sociopath will know the difference between right and wrong. They just do whatever right. they want to do. A psychopath so, is more advanced. Right. So, so, so then, so, so the moral knowledge is the one aspect that's on this theory that I, I came up, you know, that I, that I posited. The moral knowledge is, is there. And then on the other side, what I, what I frame as moral value is the decision part, the decision making part that people will, can turn off. They can, they can disengage, if you will. They can disengage the moral knowledge for what they value so let's okay. just say that it's a sexual act that i value or that i, that I desire and i want to you know even though i know that i let's let's just use this shouldn't uh have multiple sex partners or should or should you, you know practice safe sex or should I, what i'm valuing at that moment you know what's appealing to me you know what's in, what's the immediate to me is that okay. You know, is is that behavior that in which I so I can disengage. Yeah, I know for the you know maybe for the moment I can disengage. You know that yeah maybe I should not be doing this or you know maybe okay. I, right. Okay, I have a so question. Can, okay, so okay. um hypothetically, say, say for example, you are doing a, an assessment uh, without um the specific knowledge, but you do an assessment of of, of of 45, uh, uh, the president of the United States, mm-hmm. unfortunately. And you, uh, he, a lot of the, a lot of, uh, mental health professionals state that, uh, Trump, um, is a, uh, more likely a sociopath. Mm-hmm. So using that same concept of more value, more knowledge, how would you, how would you rank, assuming that, you agree that he could possibly be a sociopath. How would you mm-hmm. gauge his more knowledge, more value? How would you uh, use that for example? Um, so then, so then it would lean more on the decisive part, the more more. I would put it on value, what he what he values. So he's able to disengage. He's able to, you know, dis, you know, disengage or uh, dissociate from the ideals of, you know, common people, of common day-to-day people, you know, that's living, what's, what's, 
you know, some things probably come out as right, play out of right and wrong, what he knows, you know, should be the, the moral thing to do, the, you know, the human, the hum, hum, humanistic thing to do. But he's able to disengage from that because of whatever it is that he, what he values at the time. It, whatever it is, whether it's to save money, whether it's to make a deal, whether it's to, you know, get rid of some program for some other reason, you know, and, I, and that's I, what and he's at. Right, and I, and, I, and, I, and I tend to agree with you. However, I think uh, in addition to that, where a lot of things are clouded is the malignant narcissism. I think he probably uh, mm-hmm. suffers from in, in, in conjunction with uh uh, being a sociopath, which narcissism and being social, being a um, narcissist and a sociopath runs hand in hand. Uh, but I think that, that there's a malignant level of narcissism, and yeah, that's, that's I mean, what really gets him into trouble. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I would agree with you. <laughs> um, to work at the correctional institution in New Jersey, how was mm-hmm. that? Uh, it was interesting. Uh, uh, quite frankly, so the facility um, actually was called the Access County uh, Juvenile Detention Center. Is it what it was called? So it's um, a county-owned. Uh, it's a county-run detention center. Yeah, it's a county-run detention center. Uh, um, the mental health and the medical uh, services, uh, though, were contracting it. So. My work Definitely. there, um, I wasn't a county employee. I was contracted by a private organization. Uh, and the name of it, uh, of that organization, if I can remember, <laughs> if I can recall, it's been a while. Horizon. Um, hmm. Horizon was the name of uh, the organization. Horizon. Okay. Yeah, and um, so uh, my work there, uh, I work with uh, uh, juveniles from the ages of 13 to 21 was the oldest that I uh, hmm. work with. Usually by that time, they, you know, they transfer them to an, to an adult facility if, you know, if they were going to be detained uh, uh, for a long period of time. But uh, most most of the uh, most of the uh, the young people that I work with, I found uh, uh, delightful to work with. Uh, but you could definitely. See that, um, you know, where as far as, um, the, the, the parents, um, you know, imprint or, you know, negligence or, you know, some other area, the level of work that they had going on kind of impeded with or affected, uh, the, the, the growth and, and, mm-hmm. you know, and, and had, had some influence in how, um, these kids navigated, you know, their, environment in their community so did you do uh individual uh counseling or you did groups or what, what mm-hmm. uh, how did you what kind of clinical work did you do there so i did individual counseling and um i facilitated a weekly uh anger management group on fridays i would facilitate uh, uh anger management and um conflict resolution uh, mm-hmm. uh group uh and you know i never I, you during my time there uh I, I didn't have any problems in terms of, you know, with the way the kids behaved or, you know, how, mm-hmm. um, cause I, you know, I presented, I treated them with, with respect and, you know, so I think it was very easy for me to, to you know, have a working relationship with them. Uh, mm-hmm. you know, now, when I, when I, uh, treat juveniles, uh, I have to really explain 
being informed consent with the parents a lot uh, in great greater detail when I was with with uh, 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 counsel adults because of the confidentiality piece. Uh, it's, it's, it's a lot of, of, of gray lines when it comes to confidentiality. Did you have that issue with confidentiality uh, uh, in, in that setting? Uh, not more so. Um, uh, part of I did not have um, a lot of issues with confidentiality, mostly because um, – you know, juveniles who, who I'm going to use the term remanded, who are remanded to the county, um, or under custody, um, okay. mostly is a, is a little blanket, uh, statement about confidentiality. Well, you know, most, mostly everything we talk about is confidential unless it's an issue of, you know, you know, you're trying to hurt yourself, you're trying to hurt someone else. Um, okay. so, so in those, that's what confidentiality you know, those, mm-hmm. Yeah, right. And, mm-hmm. and so, so, you know, explaining that, you know, in that context to them was very easy. Um, mm-hmm. I, I don't re- ever recall having a situation where, um, you know, it was a discussion with a juvenile and then I felt like it was a, a dilemma, you know, confidentiality mm-hmm. dilemma where I had to, had to, um, you know. Mm-hmm. Because, because the reason I asked that question, uh, by, uh, training, uh, as a forensic psychologist, we're often told when you work in those type of facilities that the individual themselves isn't the client, but the, uh, especially in your, in that situation by you being contracted out, that the mm-hmm. court system is actually the client. Right. Is that right. the issue and that you ran into? Um, that, I would say that that's absolutely correct. Um, the information is absolutely correct that the court system is actually the client. Um, but and even in terms of, you know, confidentiality, confidentiality issues or dilemmas between working with juveniles in the court, mine was strictly blank across the board that I, I would maintain confidentiality unless it was necessary. You know, mm-hmm. the minimal, least minimal information, even if it was something that was court mandated, I would give the least necessary, you know, minimal information that's necessary um, mm-hmm. under, you know, under those circumstances. Uh, but, but, um, but that information is absolutely correct that the, the mm-hmm. court, you know, is the, the, uh, you know, it's the client. Now I can tell you, you know, what I did see, um, which I absolutely thought was outrageous, um, is, is, uh, sometimes judges making as part of a conditional, uh, uh, or possible conditional consequences if the, uh, if the juveniles, um, let's say if medication was recommended and then they, you know, disagree, you know, or didn't want to take the medication or, and, and, and then the judge will make it a consequential. Well, if you don't take the medication and, you know, we'll remand you to such and such because, you know, I, I didn't agree with that because I thought that, you know, I know that it kind of, uh, interferes with, with one, one of the main values of social work was the, you know, self-determination, you know, mm-hmm. self-determination mm-hmm. of, Mm-hmm. you know and so um so so a lot of those issues i you know when i saw i, I just you know disagreed with and and you know had 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 something to say about it you know um, mm-hmm. 
And one, one thing that and there's been Supreme Court decisions to support this is that uh, the courts will mandate treatment for an individual so that they can have capacity to stand trial. Mm-hmm. However, once uh, once they and then once they have maintain capacity to stand trial, then uh, they try them as if they were guilty or innocent, with not really acknowledging where if this person had capacity in itself during the time they committed the crime. So uh, right. so and then once they're in the system, then the mandate for them to get treatment, uh, uh, the self-determination came in and they could not mandate in the, in the prison system. So that's, that's a really big discussion in the, uh, in the, uh, for instance, psychology community. Sounds, sounds interesting. Uh, and, um, like an area to, to, to definitely explore further, uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. um, in that realm. Okay. Let's talk about one, uh, one, uh, last topic, uh, Okay. Is uh, intergenerational trauma and slavery. Okay. Uh, how do you think? Uh, are you 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 are you familiar with that concept? Yes, I am. Um, yes, uh, from yeah, from a socio historical uh, uh, concept. And I actually, uh, when I was working um, on my project, a lot of uh, what came up with these moral decision making and you know answering mm-hmm. the writing to the question of what is a conscience. Um, this this uh, intergenerational uh, uh, trauma from slavery slavery actually showed up um, in my work um, and um, just really tracing back to slavery uh, mm-hmm. you know how how we first came or how African Americans first Africans first came to mm-hmm. America you know against mm-hmm. their will and you know some stolen and then so the big a, a big, uh, a big profit for America back then was the the slave trade. Initially, the mm-hmm. slave trade. You know, once once they arrived, mm-hmm. and then you know, of course, you know the slaves. Uh, you know, did work on, um, you know, on on property. They worked on crops, tobacco, cotton fields. Um, you know, which allow uh, America to to benefit. You know, from mm-hmm. the work that they did on these fields, mm-hmm. right? And, we'll say, we'll, and, 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 and I would like to interject that there was a different type of slavery that I, through, through my study, and I have a bachelor's in, in history. The, okay. uh, urban slavery was a lot different. Where, at least, mm-hmm. especially using Houston as an example, in urban slavery, the, the slaves it was more uh, liberal, where they lived independently in their own quarters. And they lease themselves out to people to do one job or to another, and they bring the pack, the, the the profits back to the so-called owner. And and it was a, a, a really different in Houston where it was the rest of the state. And I, and I would probably think there's some other major cities in the South where there was something, where there's something similar to that. And uh, and the state uh, had to come down on Houstonians and say, look, you are letting your slaves run wild as if they are free. They have too much freedom and. You got to do something about it. So, but so, but that's. I guess that's that's just a side note. Okay, thanks. Thank you for that enlightenment. I had never heard of uh, of uh, urban urban uh, slavery. No, I, I hadn't either until I took that class on the in, in history of Houston. I thought I found it very fascinating. Okay, all right. So thank you. 
They so so a lot of the profit that America had made, you know, from from the slavery, uh, you know, just from the slave trade and, you know, from the the work the slaves did on the different let's call them plantations, uh mm-hmm. um uh, was enormous. So then if we move a little a little bit past uh um the slavery when you know, when slavery um was abolished, right? And then you see that vagrant, vagrancy became uh, an issue and became, uh, you know, an issue for, uh, for mostly African Americans to, to be arrested for not having a job, you know. Um, and then once, uh, you know, vagrancy became a crime, then you, you know, you see, uh, a lot of, uh, if we move along to, um, the Jim Crow, Jim Crow era. So you see, well, first of all, you got imprisonment for not having a job, not working, you know, vagrancy. So then a lot of the work that you did once you were in the prisons was the work, mm-hmm. you know, was work that you did was mostly for the state. So it was a mm-hmm. way for them to legalize continuation of slavery, I guess, if you want mm-hmm. to call it that. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a lot of what happened during the segregated South with the Jim Crow, we moved to that area era um a lot of things became illegal you know we couldn't vote or you know certain sections where we could sit in or couldn't sit in and and so if we look at these frames okay moving along from that from from the Jim Crow era you, you know we were told we had to sit at the back of the bus certain customs that happened um certain uh restaurants that we weren't allowed to to uh you know to to just simply sit down and have dinner uh, so then if we move along, uh, the, the, the new, if you, if you notice that during each, each, uh, section, you know, or during each time frame is the situation stays the same, which is enslavement, but the policy just changes. So we move to the war on drugs era, uh, mm-hmm. uh, which, uh, Reagan era, Reagan, um, era war on drugs in which, uh, Stiff penalties for certain drugs. If you had crack cocaine, you would do, a person who was caught with crack cocaine would do more time than the individual who was caught with like a powder form of uh, cocaine. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. and so, um, but all of these, uh, kind of, kind of, uh, continue, added to a continuation of, uh, what was framed the prison industrial complex. Uh, which was framed by Angela Davis. Uh, mm-hmm. She, you know, framed that term and did a lot of research on the prison industrial complex, um, which uh, kind of legitimized uh, prison, and, and there's a lot of money that's being made, you know, on mm-hmm. prison, on, on, now, one in thing, prison and in it. One thing I'm mm-hmm. seeing in education is that uh you know when you when you and I we we both are men of a certain age I, I'm a little older than you but when we were in school if you were in, in a fight uh you would get suspended and you would go home uh or if you missed school or or, or they had a, a in school suspension things of that nature one thing that that I'm seeing now is that uh there's this uh criminalization of every little thing that a student does, you have the police um, in after school. We uh, we had one security guard at the school when I was in high school. You have the police force after school, the large school district has the police force, 
and they arrest the children and put them in juvenile detention for for things that uh, they would have, that wouldn't have been imprisoned. So you have this imprisonment of these youths and 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 mostly inner city schools, uh, which uh, adversely affect minorities, and it starts the cycle early. It seems. Now I'm having research. I think there's some research out there, but I, that's something I'm, I'm really thinking about doing uh, a lot of research topic on something around that name. And I mean, and it is. It's, it's um, you know, t- you know, it, it is. I mean, if we think about the, the institutions, yeah, if we think about the institutions um, that tell us what we can do and what we can't do. You know, who we can be, who we can't be. I mean, all of this. If we start back with this whole slavery leading up all the way into the prison industrial complex. You know, we don't have the same, we don't have the legacy that other peoples, you know, we meaning African American people, you know, don't have the same type of legacy that um, certain people have been privileged to have in in the history um, of the United States. Therefore, uh, it, it is much more difficult uh for for or or takes a lot longer or takes more access to resources or more mm-hmm. uh, opportunity opening up opportunity for for uh, this type of trauma to kind of dwindle out. I, I'm not even gonna say go away, but kind of uh, kind of get better to improve. Okay, because so this, of the, you know this the reason is the, why. So this is some of the reasons why we probably still need HBCUs. Or why we probably need in some certain situations need a uh, uh, um, I forget I'm just going blank uh, uh, when they find favor you for whatever reason are allowed to to uh, to be at least interviewed or be be seen in the, in the school or things of nature because of your race uh, what did they call that um, uh, oh it's been a while for me I, I know I, I know yeah I, 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 my steps slipping on the concept of but the, but these are why certain provisions should be placed for people in color because of this concept. You're thinking at least and at least <laughs> an acknowledgement and an education on on um, these affirmative action. Affirmative action. Affirmative action. Affirmative action. But at least but at least an education and an awareness of. Um, the socio-historical context of what was slavery, you know, what slavery was and, 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 you know, how, how it really, what it really means to not, you know, to be separated from family and being sold and mm-hmm. not having legacy and not knowing who great, 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 great grandparents were, you know, mm-hmm. what it was like to, to the people who, who sit in decision-making capacities and control and write these policies. It's still the same concept today. If we look at Senate and how it's organized, there's certain people who sit in decision-making capacities that are often, majority of the times, are not in 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 the direction of benefit and uh, uh, this, you know, underprivileged individuals, mainly which have, you know, historically been African American people. You know, not just us, other people as well, but. So, so, so this is how you're able to see a continuation. But just going back and, and like you said, talking about affirmative action and looking at the educational system, looking at how, you know, how, how students are trained to, to recognize authority and, you know, 
the, the uh, importance looking of at the criminal justice giving, system and the right, looking at the criminal, looking at the educational system, looking at uh, asking the question, looking at what a family is, what is a family, you know, mm-hmm. you know what what why isn't there true rehabilitation? Why isn't true rehabilitation in prison systems uh, and it right, creates right. recidivism? Right, 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 right. So looking at these kind, of, these are the kinds of issues um, or some of the discussions uh, that are important to have. And these are some of the areas that help you, you know, that helps understand how uh, the the trauma, the intergenerational trauma uh, from slavery still persists um, um, right now to date. Yeah. Okay. So, Dr. Bailey, what are you currently doing right now professionally? Currently, right now, <laughs> I'm really uh, studying a uh, uh, German philosopher, Herbert Marcuse, and um, thinking about how to uh, uh, put my... Uh, practice and you know things that i'm dealing with uh right now i'm I'm dealing with some social justice um issues at work right now in the military culture um which i'm you know engaging and kind of critiquing and pushing back you know putting challenging and and bringing to light and so i'm thinking about how to be thinking about how you know i could be very useful and tactful and, and uh and critical of that whole uh, setup and, 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 um, and really engaging and trying to deliver new information, um, uh, against the, along with, you know, along with not against, but trying to deliver new information and new ways of thinking and, and new lenses of, of different perspectives of, of how to engage in practice as, as more so from a leadership, uh, aspect. You know, yeah. um, in that realm. And so right now I'm studying, um, Herbert Marcuse. And right now I'm looking at a text, uh, uh, he wrote, uh, which is part of a set, um, with, with some other, uh, phenomenal radical thinkers, um, of his time. Um, yeah. it's called A Study on Authority. Um, and so, so that's what I'm looking at right now. And, um, in hopes of, uh, of, um, putting something in publication. Okay. Okay. In a, in a journal article, right? Peer reviews. In a journal article. Or, uh, peer review journal. Peer review journal. Article. <laughs> <Yeah>. Okay. Okay. <laughs> so, Dr. Bailey, if, if, if anyone wants to contact you for a speaking engagement or, or things of that nature, how would they contact you? You have an email address you'd like to share? I I have an email address um, that I that I would share. Um, if you have any questions or you know want to contact me, you can contact me at www dot m d bailey two one zero zero one at yahoo dot com. Okay, you've been listening to Speaking the Truth, Doctor Bailey. I really, really appreciate this interview. I find it very fascinating. Uh, the the conversation really uh, went into a direction that I did anticipate. It's been a joy for you. Uh, you. You've been listening to Speaking the Truth uh, with Anthony Brown. Uh, uh, I've been interviewing Dr. Michael Bailey, uh, uh, a, 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 a special a doctor in social work. Uh, in uh, episode five of Speaking Truth, I would like you to subscribe and uh, put down uh, your comments. And, and if you have any thoughts, anything uh, about the program and, uh, or any ideas, uh, contact me at speakingthetruth.ab at gmail. Dot com. Thank you so much, Dr. Bailey. You're quite right. Thank you. It's very nice being on Speaking the Truth. you got to have me back again. 
All right. All right, bye.